Hello, fellow time travelers. I am Sasha from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I am Skip from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I'm Brooke. We're the Fiction Paradox, the only podcast dedicated to the BBC Books 8th Doctor Adventures in the whole world that we know of. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy Enjoy your your travels. Ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the Pinnacle American Editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, this is Louise Jensen and I play Leela on Doctor Who. Well, way back in the day, that is. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. time travelers and welcome back to the doctor who target book club the podcast from which we undertake the not yet mechanical task of discussing in story order all the doctor who novelizations my name is tony whit and today we have a not at all mechanical three-person discussion panel including our so-called expert who's been a who fan since 1979 that would be me there's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. So if you like what you're hearing... Please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them. But not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you have shipped them off on a sand miner full of homicidal robots to guard them. (laughs) 
just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Guy Lambert, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you long damn list we also have our goodreads discussion group where you the listener can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts you can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7k m-a-s-p-r in fact we expect you to we continue now with tom baker's third season to discuss taren stick's novelization of the robots of death without further ado here are some fast facts Doctor Who and the Robots of Death, adapted by Taryn Sticks from the script by Chris Boucher that aired from 129.77 to 219.77, published by Target Books in May 1979. As of this recording in May of 2021, this title is currently out of print. It is available as an unabridged audiobook, 108 pages. Now, before we continue with this episode, I have to make a correction to the last one. I said last time that Chris Boucher, the writer of this story, was the only writer from the classic series to have two stories produced consecutively in the same season. And turns out I must have been drunker during that recording than I thought I was, because I completely forgot Ian Stewart Black, who wrote The Savages and The War Machines way back in Hartnell's era. Yeah. So, my thanks to Stephen Andriechen, and I hope I pronounced your name correct, Stephen, for pointing that out on Facebook. The error has been edited out of the currently posted recording. It's scrubbed. <laughs> scrubbed sanitized you'll be surprised how much it never happened yes. just like a time lord <laughs> exactly i have admitted to it here but i'd really <laughs> rather not have recorded evidence of it still out there <laughs> you never yeah. know a new administration may come to power and start combing back through the old uh, podcasts of our of our civilization looking for offenses to prosecute that's that's true but we never have mentioned climate change or global warming on this podcast so we should be safe yeah. all right so this book is notable for two things one it is the shortest of all the target novelizations coming in at a mere 108 pages I feel like we've seen shorter. I no, feel, we I feel have like there have been some that. Oh, sorry. I feel like there have some, been some that are fewer than 100 pages that are in the 90s. I know why you think so. You think so because I send you the PDFs. Yes. And they are always shorter than 100 pages. But print-wise, this is indeed the shortest one. And it has nothing to do, as you might think, with the font size or anything like that. It also isn't from Dix having cut out a lot from the script either as there are a lot of scenes of robots creeping up on their victims creepily and so forth, and that takes a lot of time on screen. They affect much death. They do affect much death. (laughs) So if you've watched the story, it doesn't feel like anything is missing, really. In fact, there's something a little extra, which brings us to the second notable thing. It's one of the few novelizations in which both Dix and his editors have made an honest mistake. The character of Cass is killed in Chapter 5, and his murder is discussed in a crew meeting at the beginning of Chapter 6, which he is attending. <laughs> yes, I noticed that. I, yes. So once again, I listened to the audio, and I thought, maybe it's just me, but I don't really want to rewind several minutes, and I must just be mixed up about who is whom. No, no, that was a mistake, and I assume he was just there in spirit. <laughs> 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 as he couldn't be there in, in person. No, he gives the description of him again as if he's there. 
yeah, it felt very much like a recap of the open or the one of the earlier scenes where they're kind of showing everybody. It's like that was could have just been exchanged. So that actually would be a delightful device to use at some point is the rest of the crew doesn't know that someone's been killed and they just arrive in a meeting. They don't speak, but that's not that unusual. And they don't realize it's just a ghost or some, you know, simulacrum. Well, for one person to have made that mistake is carelessness. <laughs> but for two, it's just kind of crazy. The story itself is notable for being one of the highest regarded of the classic series. In the Doctor Who magazine First 50 Years poll of 2014, which included stories from the new series, this story came in at number 11. Hmm. It's hard to tell from the story on the page, perhaps, but it really is a great combo of good acting, good directing, and good plotting. We also have at least three actors in the story who have appeared or who will appear in other stories. Pamela Salem, who by now Allison is very intimately acquainted with, uh, auditioned for Leela, as we noted last time, and ended up playing one of the voices of Zoanan. She plays the character of Toos. Um, before gossip gets started i listened to a professional audio production by her i did not <laughs> i say I, I wouldn't describe it as intimate but i only bring that up because i had to explain to you last time who she was i so, understand i'm by very our sorry standards, by our standards you're intimately involved with her yes she will also <laughs> appear again in remembrance of the daleks in the show's 25th anniversary season david collings who plays pool um, not Poole as in cues and such, but the actual character, Poole, appears in Revenge of the Cybermen as Voris and will appear again in Modern Undead in Peter Davison's era. He'll also appear as an alternative third Doctor in the Doctor Who Unbound series for Big Finish in an audio called Full Fathom 5, which may be one of the darkest stories ever produced for Doctor Who. I am serious. I still think about that story to this day. <laughs> Russell Hunter would go on to play Yuvanov in at least two more audios set in this universe, also written by Chris Boucher, if memory serves. And David Bailey, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, who plays Dask, will go on to voice the Celestial Toymaker of all characters in the audio dramas The Nightmare <laughs> Fair and Solitaire, one of which we will actually be reading a novelization of. And finally, you may have noticed the influence for this story is, for once, not a sci-fi or horror movie this time. It is instead an Agatha Christie novel, and the movie versions thereof, specifically the one we now refer to as And Then There Were None, because all the other titles are blatantly racist. <laughs> yes. nah. That being said, the script is peppered with tributes to science fiction writers and their works. Yuvanov is a corruption of Asimov, to whom the story owes more than a little bit of credit. Poole is named after author Frederick Poole. The Sandminer itself derives from Dune. And Taryn Capel is named after the Czech writer Karol Čapek, who coined the term robot way back in 1920. So... This is what the back cover reads. On a desert planet, the giant sand miner crawls through the howling sandstorms, harvesting the valuable minerals in the sand. Inside, the humans relax in luxury, while most of the work is done by robots who serve them. Then the Doctor and Leela arrive, and the mysterious deaths begin. 
For suspects, then hunted victims, Leela and the Doctor must find the hidden killer or join the other victims of the Robots of Death. Indeed. So, Dalton, what was your first impression? Just looking at the cover, I don't know if I have seen this robot before, but I ha- it feels very familiar. Um, and I don't know if it's been used in flashbacks or, uh, you know, cut to uh, in in the newer series. Um, but yeah, just upon seeing the, the cover, I immediately felt like I had seen this robot before. I know of at least two places you could have seen it, Dalton. Uh, one, they have used it in some flashbacks in the new series, but you have visited my apartment before. So you've seen my toys and I do have one of the Robots of Death right on my bookshelf. So, In all fairness, it's an impressive collection. Yes. Yeah, yes, I know it is. What it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen it all. <laughs> Feeling the familiarity with, with the robot, and then after reading the back cover where just in the first little blurb they say it's three mentions of sand, <laughs> it very much was getting... Like you mentioned, Dune imagery from this, very much a desert planet. Not too many people there, definitely probably somewhere on the edge of the universe that uh, is not highly, you know, highly traveled, uh, low populations, things like that. So yeah, I immediately kind of had a feeling for at least the world we would be on and then the robots themselves. Okay. And Allison, how about you? You listened to the audio version, which it turns out was read by Louise Jameson, who actually plays Leela. Which I did not recall until you informed me right before the show started. So if you were trying to save my dignity, I was. Uh, no need. Um, and <laughs> while I'm playing the role of the Philistine, I've actually never read any Frank Herbert and only a short story, two of, story or two of Asimov. And I still found it delightful. I was not excited about it because, as I have often ranted in the past, I am not automatically interested in any story about a horse or a robot. There has to be something else. <laughs> I was interested in this very loving rendering of baker's hair on the front cover oh yes and it looked like he was about to give quite an injection as well um <laughs> is it his first covid or his second covid shot i was wondering <laughs> I, I was i was injected by a dead ringer for beanie Felstein, which i actually considered to be a great honor by to be injected uh, by her i i would have done a second take if i had been presented with a needle on that scale so uh, i i did have a sense that there were probably a lot of references whizzing by my ears as i read this and terms of names because usually we have a, a certain species of throwaway sci-fi name in these stories that we have some variation on here it's, it's a little bit different so I, I did get a sense there were some kind of references and i didn't get any of them other than the broad tropes and i still thought it was a lot of fun probably overall i well i'm getting too far along so first impressions were i was not excited about a robot story but then once i got into it of course i always like the terrence dicks prologue uh it might sucked me in right away okay and speaking of which allison how do you feel about stories about robotic horses uh, quite negatively isn't that the stage <laughs> production of equus or war horse one of them Double has a mechanical whammy. horse on stage i will never see it yeah yeah now, that said i have enjoyed many stories about robots but my my first reaction is an allergic one <laughs> Robophobia. Yes, yes. Yeah, robophobia, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm not inherently interested in a story about robots exploring their feelings. It did not turn out to be that sort of a story. Not at all. Mm -mm. 
not at all. If anything, this, as I said earlier, this really owes a lot of debt to Isaac Asimov and his three rules of robotics. And it manages to subvert all of them. And what are those three rules for those of us who, once again, are uncultured? Oh, you would put me on the spot, wouldn't you, <laughs> you harridan? Um, <laughs> I just pulled it up. Okay. A robot may not injure a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. A robot must obey orders given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or the second law. Yeah, and he is essentially subverting almost all of them, except for the third one, I think. But yeah, where do we start with this one? Where do I want to start? Well, those are all three asserted so regularly. Well, just the one about the what I guess the first two. It was interesting to see whether or not it would turn out to be true. And it does. <laughs> I thought it was kind of nice how the our reading of this and our recording almost lined up with uh, May Day or International Workers Day, uh, mm. given oh, given yes. that there's kind of that subtext about uh, the workers' rights going on. So I thought that was just uh, a nice. Uh, little bit of serendipity as mining mm -hmm. companies go this one was actually notably less evil than usual because normally we have a <laughs> yes. mining or a chemical company come in we're going to see uh, some some genocide or, or similar and uh they were actually not that bad grading on the doctor who curb yeah well and this is i we've had this before where we are accustomed now to stories about robots who are attaining some form of sentience and some sort of moral individuality and this is just on the cusp of those kinds of stories going mainstream this is when original westworld and original battlestar galactica that the robots are just evil they just want to kill you there's nothing further to it and i thought since this was late enough we might actually see some sort of emerging sentience and personhood and no oh yeah well and i thought maybe a little bit more might emerge from that via exposure to an experience and no but i will say there was some suspense leading up to the end of the story to find out if the robots were uh you know had decided they had nothing to lose but their chains or were being controlled by a person and it turned out they were being controlled by a person who wanted to loose their chains and they weren't interested in it which i was a little nervous about being some kind of should call it an anti-anti-colonial story but i think i'm maybe mm. imagining things that were not there I'm not sure about that, because Chris Boucher, uh, having written both of these stories, you notice how we saw that interesting subtext in the last story, and now there's an equally interesting subtext in this one. And his third script for the show isn't quite going to have that much subtext, but he writes very intelligent scripts. So it could very well be there, I think. Well, I, I hope not, because if so, the message would be, well... All of these people were colonized. They're not really people, people, you know, in the same sense we are. They just need to keep in their place. And I, I hope that's not the story that he's going for. No, no, I don't. I don't think so. Well, I'm saying, is, is it supposed to be an analogy or just purely a sci-fi is what I meant? That was the first version of the script and didn't make it through the network censors. <laughs> Even at the BBC in the 70s, let's murder all the immigrants was considered a little strong. Yeah, it's pre-Thatcher, if I recall. What else? What else strikes us particularly? Oh, speaking of which, speaking of suspense, um, you said, Allison, that the suspense was and how the story was going to resolve. Was anyone surprised that it was Dask who was behind it all? Not after we were introduced to him, which I thought was more than halfway through, right? He was in 
the beginning. Yeah. I was trying yeah. to remember if I had introduced him in the, the beginning. Well, we were introduced to like 15 characters at the beginning, so it was easy to miss him. <laughs> yes. Once he came back in such a way that he was in a constant topic of conversation, it seemed obviously him. So obvious that I actually thought they might go back to Uvanov. Yeah. Once once the body count got so high and there were only a, a couple of people that it could be, it's like, okay, who's the one they're not talking about? Who's the one that's not in any of these scenes? Yeah, it's going to end up being them because we're not talking about them. We're not seeing them have any action going on. But Dalton, have you never heard of... A, d- a double bluff? <laughs> yes, have you never heard of the double bluff? <laughs> Well, I thought yes. we might be going for more of a triple and have various robots conspiring to frame different humans until they had all eliminated one another through locking each other up or uh, similar. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I thought it might be more like, lo- oh, it's Das, he's programming us, you see. Oh, it's Uvanov. Oh, it's this or that person. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, we don't get the effect of the reveal on screen because that reveal, when you find out it's him... <laughs> Unfortunately, they do kind of give it away much earlier because you do get to see his face long before you get to see his bizarrely painted face in that last scene where he's supposedly revealed for the first time. The scene where Taryn Capel is programming one of the uh, robots, and so it's only the robot who sees that transmission, but the effect is such that it is really clear who it is. Lit him too well. Yeah, exactly that. And it it comes off much better on the page. You at least have some little bit of suspense, even though, and I noticed this, because uh, I was reading the book, obviously, with the foresight of knowing who, who it was. Dix puts in a lot of really subtle foreshadowing. I'm really kind of surprised. I mean, he doesn't always do that. And sometimes he's just as likely to say, oh, little do they know that their ship was a ship of doom or something like that. But Yes, oh my god, yes. He does a lot of that. But he also puts in some really lovely foreshadowing any time he mentions Dask. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you don't see it. But it's every single time. It's like, oh, of course it's Dask. To the point where I assumed it likely would not be. Again, double, double bluff. bluff. Ever hear of the double bluff? <laughs> <laughs> he could be substantially more interesting than he is, psychologically. That is yeah. true. And I think that is why Dix adds that bit at the very end, where he has the doctor feeling sympathy for Dask, despite everything that he's done, which does not come across in Tom Baker's delivery at all. You can tell that the fourth doctor on screen is just over this very mad scientist and just (laughs) wants this done with. But on the page, the fourth doctor is a lot more sympathetic. And I I think that's what Dix was trying to do there. But it's it's probably a little too late. There was some conflict on the audio uh, between the text and the delivery and that we had some some very expressive reading that we were told was delivered in a flat tone. So I'm not sure... Uh, <laughs> I, I don't remember the, the level of empathy he displayed toward death. Louise Jameson could read the phone book <laughs> and it would have empathy and sympathy in it. So I think that's part of it. She is not capable of doing anything in a flat voice. Please do not call out, said a calm, emotionless voice. It is important that I am not found here. 
Now, as far as those other characters, were there other characters that stood out to you, like Pool or Toos? I think that the two of them were the ones that had the most going for them. Pool was kind of interesting, but then once he went off the deep end, it, it was just like, okay, well, he's gone, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Have a nice trip, Pool. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the idea that he was supposed to be an investigator sent from the company was a good setup, but then once he had his robophobia take over, it's like, okay, well, there goes any amount of character building we had going for him. Seems like another likely candidate to turn out to be controlling the robots, but was not. Yeah. Yeah. And there actually, it actually seems at times like the script is setting him up as that, even after the reveal and of who he is. They're arguably setting, the script setting up Uvanov as well, setting up several different possibilities, none of which are all that interesting. Hmm. I thought the idea that the robots were implicating three different people to one another and to others was a bit more interesting, but I guess I just wrote my own story. Though I, I find it rather odd, and this is this is me jumping ahead to talking about plot holes in this whole thing. How how it is that Dask or Taryn Capel is doing this on a lone sand miner at which he is on, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is at at one point is going to sink into the core of the planet or explode or what have you. He's got to have an escape plan. Journey of a thousand miles and all that. Yes, exactly. And when they find him, when they find the wreckage, they're going to see that he's in robot garb himself. So it's going to be a dead giveaway. I did like the description of him applying it so badly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Which is odd because it actually does look pretty good on screen, but also it's the moment that sells it rather than the actual makeup, if that makes sense. The performance is pretty good. That's a lot mm. of it. As far as Paul's ro- robophobia, which I, I seems to come out of nowhere, I think, and it doesn't make a lot of sense for him to have been assigned a robot partner if he has it, which means that the company psychologists are, are absolute shit. They're failing terribly. I they described it as a little more acute onset. Or maybe that was just a doctor joking about, well, you know, it can come on when, you know, a robot's strangling you. You can suddenly become quite afraid of them then. I suppose so. I, I think it's because part of this is meant to be a tribute to the Caves of Steel, which does have a human detective with a prejudice against robots who is paired up with a robot detective. Yeah, he's suddenly written out, like his contract expired before they were finished filming. Yeah, I, I think part of that is, well, that's just that they couldn't have known that David Collings was going to play it. David Collings can play insane crazy really well. No. Please, no. Are you hurt? Please, go away. They know I talk to you. They watch me all the time. They hate me. They did what I told them, but only because that gave them the power, you see. Do you mean the robots? Not robots. Walking dead. They pretend we control them, but, but really, but really. But that character is much more interesting before he goes crazy, especially given that it gives us one of those brilliant moments which Boucher does and which some of the later writers don't do nearly so well, of having Leela being able to sense something before the Doctor mm-hmm. does. The Doctor is at least able to say, oh, that's body language. But Leela senses it immediately and says, there's something different about him. He's more like me than anybody else on this thing. 
Uh, I thought there was actually exquisite use of Leela in here relative to how Terrence Dix usually, I was going to say uses companions. Actually, he just you know, often writes them quite generically where he forgets what their background is and doesn't use it. And I will never stop being annoyed that Steve is an astronaut and is completely uninterested in how the TARDIS actually works and functions and navigates. <laughs> um, do some aeronautics, Steve, for crying out loud. And then others I've, I've complained about along the line should, should be more curious or skillful in different ways. And uh, I thought they made terrific use. I thought, uh, I forget, this is, who wrote the story for this one? Uh, Chris Boucher. I, I thought that PM Dex made terrific use of her background that is, it's, it's definitely Noble Savage in a way that I feel like she's the new Jamie in that she is a Noble Savage who is ignorant of technology and yet very good at fighting. Very smart and, like I said, very strate- has a very strategic mind, which was very entertaining for, for, for Jamie. He didn't understand the technology, but he was very good with nets and ladders and whatnot and punching people in the face. He was good yeah. at that. <laughs> Is this the first time we've ever had someone slap a companion in the face and experience consequences? Because we have had a lot of slaps, and I oh think it's God. always worked out uh, in favor of the slapper. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt like in the, the last uh, adaptation we read and this one her, I was discouraged by the opening standard Terrence Dick's descriptions of basically skin tone and level of attractiveness and he is equal opportunity in that men are also rated on his scale of attractiveness or lack thereof which I find very boring without describing you know specific features and whatnot uh, but that aside I felt like he had a much more individual feel for Leela than for a lot of the previous companions, especially a lot of the previous female companions, because he can write them terribly generically. And here there is some loving care. We're still getting a standard description of her with her brief costume, which I've already made the requisite joke about. Yes. Yes. But then the the actual action. Yeah. So I was discouraged by that extremely dull introduction of, well, quite frankly, the entire cast. But then I thought that her actual, that she came through as an individual in actual actions during the story. Yeah, they're about as individual as they get on the page, which isn't to say individual at all, because they are cannon fodder for <laughs> this particular murder mystery. That's not really a strength of Agatha Christie either, that she's not very strong on characterization. She's much more interested in getting us to the murders and then telling us who did it. And that's... Boucher actually handles that a little bit better than she does because the characters have at least a smidgen of interest I going thought they, on. They were adequately characterized for their brief time on this earth or away from some other earth. Yeah. <laughs> I like that some of them are basically financially embarrassed knickerbockers. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. I will say that Zilda comes off a lot better on the page than she does on screen because, I hate to say it, the actress who plays Zilda is just terrible. Especially when she goes to Ivanov's quarters and finds the ledger and opens it and realizes the truth and essentially reacts with, (laughs) And it's just abysmal and it actually works on the page it actually feels somewhat moving the dramatic the reading of it was terrific well again louise jameson <laughs> can act the pants off anybody that's why we all sit here recording this podcast pantless 
Well, some of us do. <laughs> but enough about that. Uh, that first scene between the Doctor and Leela, what did we think of it? The explanation of why the TARDIS is as the TARDIS do. I... I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed uh, the description of uh, Leela making a flat wooden disc climb up and down a length of string. Uh, that very <laughs> basic description of a yo-yo is like, yeah, that's that's the way someone like her from where she's from that's never seen this would think of it. It's a disc of wood. And yeah, the, the fact that the doctor has to explain to her that that's not going to make the ship stop working. <laughs> and she's, she's very worried about... Her. If, if she stops yo-yoing, that the TARDIS will come to an end. Well, and he's, she's, <laughs> he's quite derisive when she thinks the yo-yo is uh, helping the ship operate. And that he's quite defensive when she says, wait a minute, you're not navigating it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then he gets annoyed with her when she says that the theory that he gives is silly about why the interior is so much bigger than the outside. Yeah. If you could keep that, exactly that distance away, and have it here, the large one would fit inside a small one. That's silly. That's trans-dimensional engineering, a key Time Lord discovery. It's metal! We've landed inside something metal. But how can we? How can the TARDIS be inside something metal? Oh, one box inside another. I just explained it to you. No, not very clearly. Well, it's a rather dull subject anyway. <laughs> yes. yes it's like even for us who cares <laughs> it, it works it's like a car you don't notice it until <laughs> yeah so what else what else stands out to us as good what stands out to us as bad i enjoy when the doctor is entertainingly wrong about things and is shown up briefly by the companions not like sitcom dad buffoon mm. but yes it's, it's very entertaining at least in the like i said the rendition i heard how he glosses over well okay so i was wrong about everything moving along now yeah <laughs> which specific instance because there are a few in this one i apologize i do not have notes because i was on the hoof for the entire thing speaking of robotic horses uh. yes. um there there are a couple of moments, yes, that it's pretty clear that he's, if not embarrassed that Leela's gotten it first, is just a little like, oh, <laughs> why, why is it that I didn't catch that? Something's wrong. That's true. By the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes. No, I can't, and neither can you. Please don't say I told you so. And that's something they don't do nearly enough of in later stories. Well, that's something that a companion should bring, is an outside perspective. Yeah, mm -hmm. agreed. What else? You look ridiculous in that outfit. You're not half the robot your father was. The taunt struck home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why were you in the storage tank? Oh, don't ask silly questions. Anyway, how did you know I was there? <laughs> I, I have a question for the experts. Is the doctor supposed to have a sort of TARDIS-like infinite pockets? Mm -hmm. Where he might... Okay, where he... I wasn't sure if that was just this doctor or all of them, where he has, you know, for example, a length of hose for ventilation and whatnot. <laughs> the tenth doctor makes explicit reference to it, and the... That is the second Christmas special or the first one? The second that introduces Donna. 
What did you do? Guess what I've got, Donna? Pockets. How did that fit in there? They're bigger on the inside. I didn't remember that as much before Baker, but maybe I just didn't notice. Yeah, it seems to mm-hmm. be more of a recurring theme with him. Yeah, he seems to have infinite mallet space, as we might call it. <laughs> At one point in a later story, and I know for a fact this moment is not going to show up on the page, someone hands him a drink, he takes a sip of it, makes a grimace, and then drops it into his pocket. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, there's got to be something catching all of that. (laughs) Something else that doesn't come up on the page is um, that line about bumblebees. Uh, I love that. Yeah. (laughs) Which is not true, is it? It's not true now. (laughs) We we now know how they fly. They did not know that, of course, at the time. I find it hard to believe there was ever a scientist who said, well, it's plainly impossible as opposed to, we just don't quite understand it yet. (laughs) Right. That comes later in the story, but earlier in the story, he has the line that, to the rational mind, nothing is inexplicable, only unexplained. So that's kind of a callback to that. Yes. And a callback to the previous story, too. Boucher likes to give the doctor those axiomatic expressions and we don't always get those from other writers even of the for the fourth doctor though occasionally they will come up like the line i never carry weapons if people see you mean them no harm they never harm you yeah. nine times out of ten <laughs> they have a very good dynamic that's established i feel like in the the, the first appearance of leela yeah yeah and it's definitely here as well all right, what else? I think that the the way that Ivanov is characterized as this cold leader type. I had a, I had a line from earlier on where the power goes out and he's talking to Borg and Borg says, "Power's coming, sir. So's old age, Borg. But I don't want to spend mine <laughs> sitting in this desert waiting for you to do your job." Um, he just he comes <laughs> off as a hard ass completely, mm-hmm. and I just I, I enjoyed that because we do in the end learn that with his job comes a lot of uh, nuance. And, and some of that, that hard-assery is him just trying to be a good leader. Yeah, that and he's got a reputation uphold because he's kind of had to destroy his reputation just to protect the memory of Zilda's uh-huh. brother. To the point that even she doesn't know that her brother actually died the way he yeah. did. And I love that moment, by the way, because that is the most Agatha Christie-esque moment in this Agatha Christie book. Because she would say, oh, it's not this character, but he is linked to this character because of this, etc., etc. Yeah, it's not quite Murder on the Orient Express, thank God, because that would have flipped the script and then the robots would have been killed off by everybody on board, but... That's a completely different story. (laughs) We've spoken before of some of the adaptations we've read having 100% recycled material, all story elements that we've seen before and not that long ago. This one had a lot of familiar elements, but I thought it was one of the best examples we've seen of that. We've seen all of this before, but it's still such a fun ride. Yeah, it's a nice synthesis, isn't it? And when Doctor Who tries to do that in later stories, it doesn't always succeed. But this one, this one seems to get it right, obviously, with its uh, placement in the poll. What about that ending? The resolution, the way we take out Taryn Capel? <laughs> <laughs> Re- reading it on the page, the surprise kind of gets ruined because the Doctor... At- 
Terrence Sticks goes into teacher mode and gives the explanation of what's going to happen before it happens. So you don't get the real surprise of his voice going all squeaky, which is just absolutely hilarious. And Leela's doing the same thing. Yeah, it did feel like there were a few instances where Terrence Sticks decided, oh, yes, this is supposed to be a children's show that we teach them things on. Let's teach how to murder with helium. <laughs> well, there's the bit about the helium, but there's also <laughs> the, the line about Marie Antoinette and his little, yes, <laughs> you know, the the French Revolution. La, 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 la. <laughs> <laughs> the Marie Celeste, yeah. where was that at? <laughs> <laughs> We did get that at least, but <laughs> but we do get that potted history lesson that doesn't isn't on yeah. screen, which is yeah, that's very much Terrence Dick saying the kids aren't going to get a reference to Marie Antoinette, so let's do yeah. this. I I also don't remember. We'll all go together when she goes. Um, I, that is on screen. Oh, I should have watched the story again before uh, reading the book. But <laughs> end of the semester. <laughs> God help us all. Yes. few other things, one being that Poole's condition is actually referred to on screen as Grimwade Syndrome, which is named after the story's production assistant, Peter Grimwade, who later go on to direct and write a few episodes, including one that is notorious in Doctor Who circles. I'm relieved, because I thought you were going to say who died during production. So. No, no, God, no. No, he is dead, <laughs> but he didn't die of this production. Oh, oh, and that's another thing that's missing, too. And obviously, it's something you can't do on the page. When the berserk robot has been tricked into trying to strangle one of the other robots, and SV7 is telling it, um, that's not the doctor. You can hear it in the background, the robot being strangled, saying, do not kill me. Do not. V4, that is not the doctor. Do not kill me. And it's just <laughs> hilarious. Perfectly reasonable yeah. request. <laughs> As is the line that D84 has, which isn't, please do not throw things at me. Leela throws the detached hand at him, and he says, please do not throw hands at me. And it's much funnier than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it sounds funny. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> All right. Anything else? There is the line at the end uh, or towards the end where the doctor is kind of taunting Dask. And he says, I suppose you're one of those boring maniacs who needs to gloat. You're going to tell me your plans for running the universe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've noted several times now in several books in succession that the fourth doctor's trope on the page is to sigh mm-hmm. a lot <laughs> because he's just so like, oh, God, this yeah, again. Yeah, he's totally over it. <laughs> 743 fucking years of this. Jesus Lord. (laughs) I'm very sorry I don't have any written notes on this. Normally I do even for an audiobook, and I fear that instead I've created what uh, Terrence Dix refers to as a whining buzzing sound, but it was not for lack of appreciation. The fact that I am actually still here during the wind-up of the semester and uh, between tax deadlines, etc., is a tribute to how much I've actually liked Leela as a companion. And, and mm-hmm. well, and only one one story so far, and then the second one today. I just find that she's delightful, and will, at this point, is headed towards becoming my favorite that I've read. Really? Okay. And I have liked several. I I feel that too. The last story, it she felt secondary. This one, she feels very much like a full fledged, full embodied character that I really hope continues on this trajectory. Even Robert Holmes, though. 
uses her in a very different way. He uses her as a sort of companion that he wanted to have in that role. But we'll we'll get to that, obviously. And there's so many other things that we'll get to <laughs> when we get to that book. Oh, my yeah. God. I enjoy a companion who is from a time and place that's more technologically primitive to our own. Cutting through a lot of the clutter of seeing technology that's more advanced than our own. Mm-hmm. And... I felt like that was done nicely, sometimes with Jamie, even though Jamie had kind of a head full of, of gravel sometimes. Uh, but with Vicky, we had that, and then it sort of devolved into screaming. So I, I hope we're not headed that way with Leo. No. I, I, I like that kind of a companion. Because they yeah. often, on the one hand, they will, well, they will first say something that seems quite naive, and then they often have quite striking insights because they aren't as distracted by as many interceding facts as, as 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 a doctor or as we are she will scream once in the next story but it is entirely justified it is probably the one companion scream i'm like yeah if i were in that situation i'd be screaming my bloody head off too well and i have I, I, this is like soapbox i get on i have no problem with the companion screaming as long as we are screaming with the companion instead of saying look at this silly girl yeah yeah screaming with not 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 about <laughs> no, yes. screaming with rather than her being sort of an object of scorn and needing rescue yeah mm-hmm. as as long as it is not the scream, and I have to bring this up because people listening to the show already know that I'm going to bring up the actual televised story. The death scream of Chubb, the first... Yes, I could of make whom? a terrible joke about a robot choking a Chubb, but why would I ever do that on a family show like this? <laughs> it is... Dix describes it as a terrifying scream. It may be one of the oddest death screams ever in Doctor Who, and it doesn't work for the scene because if he's being strangled, there's no way that that Tarzan-like ululation is coming out of his throat. (laughs) So I did not hear the scream, but they do describe it as a very strange scenario in the book. If he yeah. was being strangled, how does he scream? Maybe it was a pre-recording. Maybe something else happened. So it. <laughs> so I didn't realize it was it was strange to actually hear in the episode. But apparently, Dix also thought it was kind of strange. Just, just imagining someone setting up a device to use the Wilhelm scream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great! Now I have to track down the Wilhelm scream and drop it's that been in. It's used all over Thank the place. Don't. I'm sure it's easy to find. So. <laughs> Oh, I know, but I've managed to avoid it up to this point. We've been, what, 90 episodes into this podcast, and I've never used the Wilhelm screen on an well, there episode. There you go. And here we go. Thank you. What a lovely gift you have bestowed upon me. Okay. Thank you. Allison doesn't have her notes this time. i got to pick up the slack. Amen, yes. Someone's got to carry my sorry car- carcass along. I just realized, though, you're right, that plot point gets dropped, doesn't it? I'm trying to get us off Wilhelm scream, yeah. <laughs> that plot point gets entirely dropped because maybe it is recorded by Dask, but it's not his scream. I thought maybe the initial scream was, the robot is going to try to kill me, and then the robot does yeah. so. I thought maybe yeah. it was a scream of surprise that that was what was happening. And it would be surprise. <laughs> That's for sure, but... <laughs> Good lord. All right, anything else you can think of? 
I just have two things that are kind of tied together. Earlier in the book, we have the line from Leela that she tells the doctor, sometimes you speak like a Tesh, doctor. Thank you. That was not well meant. And then <laughs> later at the end of the book, the doctor, basically, Leela is just having like little bits of short speech. And he goes on these long extrapolations about explaining whatever's going on. But then he tells her she's talking too much. If I can discover where he modified this, but do you have to talk so much? Sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Quality thing. Yeah, so it, th those two kind of uh, went together for me as them kind of building that uh, rapport. Yeah, and it's this very, and as we noted in the last episode, it's a very odd dynamic because it is chemistry, all right, but it's negative chemistry because they were not getting along on set at all or rather tom baker wasn't getting along with her which isn't all that unusual for tom baker at this time he was being a diva oh <laughs> was he ever but that can often work to create a sort of awkward blankness and here we have something that's quite dynamic it just may or may not be the original dynamic that was intended when she was cast but it's definitely a dynamic yeah louise jameson herself has said that it translated into that when you have two professionals working with that much negative emotion you channel it and it comes across very well it does mean that a lot of tom baker's line reads are a lot more acerbic than they come off on the page doctor why didn't the helium make your voice go squeaky because i'm a time lord i've been around you know two hearts respiratory bypass system i haven't lived 750 years without learning something after you Mouse. But that's always true when Terrence Dix is writing The Fourth Doctor. He's much more friendly on the page than he is on screen. So much more so. So, shall we go to Goodreads? I think we can. All right. As we always do, let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of this book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves, you may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.67, which is somewhat higher than the previous book. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Michael gives this two stars and says, Listen to the audio version of this one a few years ago. It's from the era when I imagine poor Terrence Dix chained to his typewriter and only given bread and water until he finishes his next three Target books. That said, it's a pretty solid outing, if a bit bare bones. It's probably helped by a nicely done performance by Louise Jameson on the audio version, and that it was a good script to start with. Our Patreon Dave Davis says, It'll be interesting to hear what someone who hasn't seen the TV version makes of it, but my memory of the Art Deco robots and people in their Art Deco environment is strong enough to eclipse most of the changes, such as all the robots being silver. That's right, he describes them as all being silver in the book, and the, um, the dumbs are actually black robots, which, ugh, don't even get me started on the, um, 
subtext of that. One change that annoyed me was the change of D84's line from please do not throw hands at me to please do not throw things at me. It wasn't exactly a belly laugh moment, but the change made it a nothing one. It may as well not be there at all. Likewise, the in-joke of Grimwade Syndrome, named for production assistant leader writer and director Peter Grimwade, after he complained that all the stories he worked on involved robots to Grimwald Syndrome just seems to deflate the humor, which is especially galling as it was one of Tom Baker's better suggestions. The characters come through well, particularly Ivanov. Ivanov is played on TV by Russell Hunter. I didn't know any of this, by the way. A household name in the UK at the time the story this was made for his role as Lonely in the series Callan. Lonely was the sidekick of the eponymous anti-hero of that series, and was called Lonely because of an unfortunate tendency to sweat profusely whenever he was nervous to the olfactory stress of anyone nearby. <laughs> wow. Such was the pathos Hunter portrayed as lonely, he nearly didn't get the job as Ivanov, as he was thought by producer Philip Hinchcliffe to be typecast, but director Michael Bryant insisted, and we get hints of pathos as a red herring. And... <laughs> Wow. Which is just lovely. And the crew of the Sand Miner was multicultural, which is true, with no yellow or black face involved, for once. I won't say much about Chris Boucher's sequel, his novel Corpse Marker. By the way, the Corpse Marker's on stream. Bicycle Reflectors. <laughs> it's kind of lovely. A clip that I read it straight after this one, and the characterizations match very well. This was a fun read. It was a quick read, but alas, I don't live anywhere close to a beach. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell he's listening to us. Yes. <laughs> what a, I feel duly sickly burned. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and finally, Jack gives it four stars and says, this is probably one of my top ten favorite Doctor Who stories. The setting is similar to a lot of other stories in that it's on a large vehicle, not quite a spaceship, but near enough, with a crew and a bunch of robots, but the story somehow manages to feel interesting and stand out from others of its ilk. The uniquely Art Deco robot design helps on TV, but in the book, the robot descriptions are fairly brief. The characters and conversations are what really makes the story shine, and I was sad at the omission, or changing anyway, of the infamous please do not throw hands at me line. I honestly didn't know that was repeated in there, and everyone misses that line. Other than this, the novelization is very similar to the televised story and makes for a very enjoyable read. So, Allison, out of five stars, what would you give this novelization? Uh, I'm going to go three, which once again, I've been... I've been just throwing them out like, uh, you know, Doge throwing out gold coins lately. But I feel like Terrence Dix definitely earned his bread and water and possibly even real butter with this one. And uh, that's because I enjoyed the banter that I know now it was born of, of some hatred. Uh, it's my The cover is my favorite illustration I've seen of Tom Baker so far, sort of glowering from underneath his hair. And I'm being a little bit silly about that, but it actually, I think, shows some of the uh, the appeal of how he plays the character. I, I'm enjoying the, the Leela stories we've read so far, and I thought this one had a lot of good light humor and banter. Okay. And Dalton? I would go 3.75 for this one. It, it doesn't have any kind of like glowing, wonderful, has me falling over myself writing, but... I feel like Terrence Six does a really good job uh, getting some characterizations in, even for the secondary characters. I felt like Leela really comes into her own in this one. There's a lot of good moments between her and the Doctor. And even if the plot was a little, maybe not phoned in, but just how it, it whittled its way down to only, of course, its desk, I still enjoyed what was happening with it. And I really am looking forward to watching this episode, or these these episodes, because uh, I'm sure it's multi-part. 
smart. So yeah, I would say 3.75 for me. Okay. And as for me, I'd have to give this a 3.5. It is a pretty solid book. It is script page, but when do you have an original script that is as good as this is? that works. When you have a really great script, it doesn't matter if you're just transcribing. Luckily, Dix isn't just transcribing. He's not doing quite as much original writing as he did in the last book, mind you. But it's still good. I have to admit, I did not notice those things missing until they were pointed out in the reviews. And I'm kind of surprised because those are some of my favorite moments, but they're really not missing all that much. And I have a feeling they were in the original script. And Tom Baker probably made his suggestions, changed them. That's why we have the moments that we do today. They weren't in the original. It doesn't matter because it's still a strong script and it's still a fairly strong book. So, yeah. 3.5 out of 5. Oh. All right. Well, thank you all. Yes, yes. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we welcome back Jennifer Picker to the show when we discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of The Talons of Wing Chiang. Ooh. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all on word with no spaces. Feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and then inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. terrifying scream echoed down the corridor, stopping suddenly as if someone had flicked a switch. Ah!